right, guys, you may be seated as you are being seated. Turn your copy of God's Word to Romans 13. Romans 13. In the wake of one of the most tumultuous election seasons in my lifetime, certainly, we come to Romans 13. And there have been these moments as we've been walking through this book where we literally could not have planned like how well the text would dovetail with the events of our world. And today is one of those as well. I, was, I just had to laugh when um, a couple weeks ago I looked ahead a little bit to see where we would be this week and realized that it would be in Romans 13. Um, but with all of that said, I, I find this, out of everything we've looked at thus far, I actually find this to be one of the most challenging of all the passages in this letter. And you may find today that the same thing is true for you. Before we read it, let me just remind us that starting at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul began, began giving us what, what I'm going to call like an ethics of Christian living. He started in paragraph one of chapter 12 by looking at us, the individual, by, by each person, and, and kind of going, here's what it looks like to follow Christ. It looks like not being conformed to this world, but being transformed specifically by renewing your mind. And, and we use the words divesting and investing, divesting from the things of this world, pulling out of the things of this world, and giving ourselves to the things of Christ. So he began there in chapter 12. Paragraph 2, he moves to the body of Christ, the church, the collective, and he says, here's what it looks like for us to live together. Here's what it looks like for us to be in community with each other. And at the center of that is Christ. It is his example. It's his love. We should treat each other in the way that he has treated us, right? So no big surprises there. And yet it's really hard. It was really hard for the Roman church. It's hard for us. Um, it's just something that's going to be challenging. But then we take that same mindset of making Jesus our example and seeking to emulate him, seeking to model his love, his mercy, his grace for others. We take that and we then apply it to the rest of the world, even people who don't know Christ. And that's how we wrapped up chapter 12 with Paul telling us that as the church, we need to seek to live peaceably with all people, no matter what they think, no matter what they believe, no matter who they are, that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But yet, he anticipates a question today. He anticipates a question that will come out of everything he has said up to this point. That question is this, but what about the government? What about the government? In all of this rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and all of this modeling love and grace and seeking to live peaceably with all, what about this government that we serve under? Which for the Romans, as we've pointed out, was a government that called what they believed illegal. It wasn't just something they frowned upon. It ultimately leads to one of the greatest persecutions and genocides in human history as the Romans systematically started killing Christians. But Paul continues today in chapter 13 with these striking and perhaps even shocking words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So before we read this, I want to quickly 
outline what I see as three challenges, hurdles, problems that we may encounter as we read the text today. And then we're going to read it and then we're going to unpack these. First of all, the worldview that Paul presents us with is largely not the way that we have been taught to see the government. It's largely not the way that we have been led as American citizens to view our government. So often, this text that we're about to read is simply presented as Paul saying, hey, Christians, you should be good citizens. But that's a reduction. That's a gross reduction of what he's actually trying to say here. He's actually presenting us, guys, with a theological vision that many of us either have not been taught or we have just not bought into it. So he's doing more than, he's, than saying be good citizens. He's presenting us with a theological vision. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is that this passage is not about America, right? We say that all the time. We can't read ourselves into the pages of Scripture. We can't insert ourselves into the pages of Scripture. Even though it has things to say to us, things to teach us, ways in which it's leading us, this passage is not about America. And we have to be careful as we read through this. Um, Paul's not going to tell us how we should vote, for example. Right? Paul's not even thinking about that kind of a political system in his day. Third challenge is this. A natural objection we will have will be this. But what if our government is evil? Or what if our government is corrupt? Or what if our government is unjust? So those are the things I see as the three hurdles. And before we really dig into those, let's read our text for today. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to change my mic real quick. So, challenge number one. Most of us 
don't think this way about the government. So as we said, Paul presents a pretty clear theological vision for all of his ambiguity in this letter, for all of the moments where we're kind of like, eh, what does he really mean here? What is he really trying to say? This is one of those places where, man, it's pretty clear. He doesn't mince a lot of words. He's pretty direct. And one of the things that he's pointing us towards in this theological vision is that God is not simply in control in some sort of distant way where, yes, ultimately he is all-powerful, and yes, he knows what's going on because of his omniscience, but, but he is sort of distant. But no, 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 the theological vision that Paul's painting for us is that God is intimately active in forming, shaping, and using leaders, and specifically here, governmental leaders, for his purposes. But that's not only true of the government. It's true of all things, right? This is ultimately part of what he's been saying up until now. God is not removed. God is not distant. God is active and engaged in all things. There is nothing in our world, one, that he hasn't made, and two, that he says, eh, whatever. There's nothing he doesn't have an opinion on. Like, there's nothing that he doesn't have a will towards or a plan for. Here's the challenge for us, though. We're inclined to think that God can only use those who love him, that God can only use those who are obedient to him to accomplish his purposes. But that diminishes him. That diminishes his capabilities. No, throughout the whole of Scripture, God uses all kinds of men, all kinds of women to accomplish his will. Kings, shepherds, fishermen, Roman governors, queens, Moabites, Babylonians, Philistines, talking donkeys, y'all. Like, God is capable of using whomever, whenever, however he chooses and even though we know many of these stories that I'm alluding to, we quickly forget them because the media and political candidates and, and honestly just American civics tells us that every election depends not on God, but on you and on me. Our American civic model tells us that the government is what? Of the people, by the people, and for the people. And so we've naturally come to view our government as resting on the shoulders, not of God, but of us. And if we involve God at all in the process, it's in maybe helping us to make judgments and assumptions about which candidates seem to potentially be Christian, or which candidates maybe we should vote for. God, give me your wisdom. But Paul tells his Roman readers something they already know, but that we often miss, and that is, we aren't the one who make governments. The Roman church had no voice in their government. So in him presenting this kind of concept, it wasn't a big shock to them. It was no revelation. But the next part of Paul's point may have been, you don't make governments. Caesar does not make governments. The Roman Senate does not make governments. God does. This is about as clear as it gets. The second part of verse 1, for there is no authority 
No authority except from God. Any authority that exists, God is graciously, in his sovereignty, bestowing upon someone else. And notice the last part of that. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Instituted by God. God is the real catalyst behind those who step into positions of human authority. Even if they don't know God. Even if they hate God. Isaiah 45. Turn with me real quick to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 the people of Judah have been kidnapped by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. They've come in, they've sacked Jerusalem, and they've taken thousands of people prisoner, kidnapped victims. They've taken them back to Babylon. But then ultimately, Babylon gets conquered by Persia. And Isaiah, the prophet, writes of King Cyrus, the conquering Persian king. Here's what he says about Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now wait a second. This is a pagan king who has conquered those who conquered the people of Judah. Right? So this is a pagan king. And Isaiah says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isn't that incredible? I name you, though you don't know me. So here's a pagan king, not a servant of the Lord, not even a moral person, but God says, though you don't know me, I have grasped your right hand. Though you don't love me, I'm using you to accomplish my purposes. The exact same thing could have been said of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And, and Paul basically alluded to this point back in Romans 9, 17. He said, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, pagan king does not know the Lord, but God says, I've raised you up. I've put you here. I have purpose for you. My will will be done through you. But it's not dependent on your obedience. It's not dependent on your love of me. It's all dependent on me. I'm the one who is doing these things. It can seem, though, that our view of God's role in our political structure and our government that our view of that can change depending on the situation. Our, one of our favorites, theologian Michael Frost, 
asks this question. He says, have you noticed that Christians have a habit of saying that God appoints the leaders they voted for, but he only allows the ones they didn't vote for? Our view of this can change depending on the situation. But yet, according to Paul, in all things, anybody that rises to a position of power, God has named them to that. God has instituted it. God has put them there. That's Paul's perspective. God is the one behind it. Paul also speaks in generalities here concerning like the, the role of rulers and government. In general, a civic government is meant to protect those or who are good, and, and punish those who are evil. Like, when a government is functioning in a semi-normal and healthy way, that's what should be happening. This is verse 3, 4, 5. The rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good. Right? He's basically already told the folks this. You need to live peaceably. Rejoice with those who rejoice. As far as it depends on you, right? Live in harmony with other people. Do what's right. Do what's good. And you'll receive the approval of others, he says. But he goes on, verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So built into this is this notion that if you, like, revolt against what God has put in place, then it's not just this leader you're revolting against. You're revolting against God. And Paul's perspective is you will incur his wrath as a result of that. In other words, if you don't like a ruler or you don't agree with a ruler, it doesn't give you license to disregard the law of the land. That's all that stuff about paying taxes. Just because your ruler is not a follower of Christ or just because your ruler says your religion is illegal does not mean that you can go, well, then I'm not going to pay my taxes anymore. Paul says that goes against what I just taught you, which is to live at peace and harmony. So pay taxes to those whom taxes are owed. Give money to those whom money is owed. Give respect to those whom respect is owned. Additionally, we get this notion and we see this throughout the scriptures that God uses governments and leaders to carry out his wrath on evildoers. More on that in just a minute. The second challenge for us is, again, that Paul's not writing into our modern context. He's not writing into our American governmental system. Even though the American model of government is, to some extent, in part based on the Roman model, the Roman Republic, right? The fact that, you know, remember, Rome had a Senate. Even though our government is based in part on that, he's not speaking to a group of citizens who, like, get to vote for Caesar, right? He's not speaking to a group of Roman citizens who have many varied freedoms, including freedom of religion, Again, Christianity was technically illegal until about the 320s. So you can't go to Romans 13 to figure out, do I vote for this candidate or this candidate? Which, which mayoral candidate do I hit the button for? Paul's not going to tell you that. And if anything, I think this should just push us deeper into prayer. Like, if God is the one that's moving levers in actuality, 
then we need to be coming before him and saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but Father, help me to know what your will is. How many of us put more time and effort and energy into prayer leading up to the most recent election than we did into researching candidates and positions and those kinds of things, right? If, if, if what Paul's saying is true, then what actually matters more is what does God want and not where does somebody stand on a variety of issues. So this should push us towards prayer. In the American model, God is still putting people in positions of authority and leadership. That hasn't changed. But he's doing that through the framework of voting. And, and this is similar, I think, to salvation in some ways. What we've said about salvation, what Paul said about salvation, is God is the one who saves people. It's his power. It's his doing. I've never saved anybody in my life, and neither have you. And yet, he uses us in that process as his body, as his church, to declare the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel. So God is saving people through us, even though it is not our power or our doing. Right? He is calling us to obedience, to do what he would have us do, to seek his will and to live his will so that his power, so that his will is done and his power is seen even through us. I think a similar thing is going on in our American system today. But the final challenge is this. What if government is corrupt or unjust or evil? I think there's some very natural and yet extremely challenging questions that this text brings up. And I mean, even just over the last 150 years, our world has seen some of the most heinous tyrants and horrific events in human history. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, slavery, government-sanctioned genocide in places like Rwanda, China, Russia, Germany. I've stood in a burial tomb in Rwanda filled with the bones of people who were killed in the genocide. A million people were killed in a span of, I think, 10 days in 1994 in Rwanda, many of them with machetes. I mean, just brutal stuff. Civil wars raging around the world in places like Syria, killing people by the hundreds of thousands. Like, it is natural to ask, where is God in all of this? Or even to ask, did God do these things? Again, we fall into that appointed versus allowed question. Even in America today, we certainly don't have a government that's perfectly moral by any stretch of the imagination. Legalized abortion, uh, systemic racism, mistreatment of immigrants. I mean, it makes voting extremely challenging for us because neither party is the kingdom of God. Neither party and no political candidate is his kingdom coming near. And no politician and no government is sinless. Here are things we know, though. First of all, God is incapable of and completely absent of sin. This is known as his divine infallibility and his divine impeccability. 
He not only is absent of sin, he is incapable of sin. God remains sinless even in his wrath because his justice is perfect. And because according to scripture, we all deserve death. There is no human being that doesn't deserve death. There is no human being that doesn't deserve God's wrath. The big change that comes for us is when we see and receive his grace. That's what actually changes our situation, is his mercy, is his goodness. So we know that to be true of God. There is no sin in him. But then the second thing we know is that the terrible things we see in our world are the result of human sin and depravity. They are not the result of God doing anything. They are founded in the sin of mankind and perpetuated by the sin of mankind. And part of God's judgment all the way back to the garden is that we would live under a curse of sin and death because the man and the woman were disobedient. So God is without sin. We are not, right? God is not facilitating sin. We are. So one of the best examples we have in Scripture of how to live under a pagan regime is in the story of Daniel, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. In the story of Daniel, Daniel was a young man who, along with many other people, was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Again, they, they completely like ransacked Jerusalem, took all of these people back to Babylon, including Daniel. He has these friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who you've maybe heard of before. And they're taken into Babylon, into the court of King Nebuchadnezzar, and for some reason are given a certain amount of power and privilege. It's because of God's hand at work. But this government does not follow the Lord. This king does not follow the Lord. And these men like repeatedly find themselves in these crises of conscience. But their basic example is this. They're seeking to live at peace in the midst of their enemies. They're seeking to bless and not to curse. They're seeking, as far as it depends on them to give honor and respect where it's due. They're not troublemakers. They're not inciting revolution. They are seeking to serve the pagan king with honor and respect, even though he destroyed the holy city. Even though he exiled the people of God. Even though he's forcibly taken them from their homes and families. They serve him. But when the rulers attempt to force them to do things that would be an abomination to God, that completely go against their conscience, when they are potentially forced to do some of these things, they respectfully refuse. And you perhaps know some of these stories. Daniel refused to eat the king's food because it had been sacrificed to pagan gods. Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship a golden statue of the king. Daniel refuses to pray to the king and instead makes a somewhat public show of praying to God instead. Instead of praying to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel instead goes into his upstairs apartment, opens his windows, and prays to the Lord. 
in the midst of a corrupt, some would say even evil regime, they seek to live peaceably until it just becomes impossible for them to do what they're told to do. And in those moments, they don't take up arms. They do spiritual work. They devote themselves to things like prayer and fasting. And there are consequences that come for them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in a furnace and miraculously saved. Daniel is thrown into the pit of the lion and miraculously saved. But there are myriad examples of followers of God over the centuries who have found themselves in very similar situations and consequences come from their refusal to do what the government is telling them to do. And in many cases, they die. Look at the lives of the apostles. Men who were expecting a messianic military leader in the line of David, who repeatedly asked Jesus, Lord, when are you going to do that stuff? But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He then sent them with the gospel and with the spirit of God, and all but one was martyred for following Christ. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will certainly hate you. And if they killed me, they will certainly kill you. We look to their examples and the examples of people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to give us some kind of context for what it looks like to live in a pagan society. Daniel and his friends had hard lines. We're going to seek to live at peace. We're going to seek to bless and not curse. But there's a point where we cannot go any further. There are things we simply will not do. And here's the thing for us today as I close. Just like Daniel, just like his friends, we are also exiles. You probably don't think of yourself in that way. You may think of yourself as an American. But if you're a follower of Christ, the scriptures call you an ambassador of another world. Another place. Paul talks a great deal about this. This idea that we have been sent. Not just to live our lives. Not just to have fun for a while until we die. But we have been sent. To represent the kingdom to which we belong. Exiles, ambassadors, emissaries. Those who come with a message, those who come with power, those who come with purpose, and those who stick out like sore thumbs in the midst of our world, just like Daniel and his friends. Why will you not eat the king's food? Like it's the best food. Daniel says, let me, let me do this. L let me just eat vegetables. And let's see who looks healthier bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar, bow down before this golden statue. 
we're not going to do that. People who follow a different leader, people who follow a different king, who exist in the midst of whatever regime they're in, but whose loyalties are not to that regime, first and foremost, whose loyalties are to a king and a kingdom that exists outside of this world. That's what's referred to as the good testimony that Jesus gave before Pilate. They tell me that you're a king. Are you a king? They tell me that you've uttered blasphemies. Are you a blasphemer or are you a real king in the Jewish culture? And Jesus says, I am a king, but I'm not that kind of king. And I have a kingdom, but it is not of this world. And if you're a follower of that king, then the place you belong, the place you represent, the person you represent is not this place. And it's not just you, and it's not your family or your parents. It's a whole new thing. And we have gone from death to life. We've been born again, not just into a new way of being, but into a new world. It's customary in liturgical churches that when you read a psalm that you would say after the psalm something known as the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And then it ends by saying this interesting phrase. It says, world without end. Amen. And it's this idea that for those of us who have passed from death into life, the world will never end. Because we belong to a kingdom that is eternal. Our country will never end because our country is ruled and governed by the creator of all things. So every time our nation goes through an election cycle or process, there's fear and trepidation, confusion, chaos. But it does provide a mirror on where your hope is at and who your king really is and what you're hoping for. And I want to close this with prayer this morning. And what I want you to consider as we pray is where do you fall on that spectrum in the world but not of the world citizen of another place versus citizen of this place? Where is your hope? Is it in a new president or is it in the president who could have been or is it in something else entirely? Is it in the real king who is full of grace and truth and whose kingdom will never end? Is that where you find encouragement and strength, joy, Hope. Let me pray for us. Would you consider those things? Father, turn our hearts towards you today. Open our eyes to see your kingdom 
And even though we may view it through a glass darkly, help us to rest in it and find the joy and the hope that you tell us is available to us through your gospel, through faith in Christ. God, you are capable of all things. We've learned today that you are moving and acting and affecting change in ways we can't even understand. Lord, so often we don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it. So often you reveal your will to us in in pieces. But Father, help us to remain faithful, even in unknowing. Help us to remain hopeful, even when our world seems broken and chaotic. Help us to cling to the truth that there is a kingdom that is bigger and greater than this world we live in. And that that kingdom is coming. And may we not be like the foolish virgins in the parable we read today who think, eh, I'll get to that later. Because your word tells us, Father, that you are coming. Your kingdom is coming. The sun is coming. And we do not know the day or the hour. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.